This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 54 of the History Files for the fourth week of May 2016. We're pleased this week to have as our guest Duncan Clark, a fellow history enthusiast with a special interest in naval history. I've known Duncan for about 10 years now, and we get together and we talk a lot about naval history. And so today we thought, well, what better time than to discuss the naval history of the Battle of Jutland, which took place just 100 years ago this week. Before we jump into that, however, here are a few historical headlines. May 24, 1626, representing the Dutch West Indies Trading Company, Peter Minuet is thought to have bought the island of Manhattan from the locals for trade goods valued at around 60 guilders. Of course, the natives had no concept of the ownership of land, so who knows what they thought the actual bargaining was about. Historians and economists vary in their interpretation of the current-day value of the sale in present-day U.S. dollars, which range from, range from, <laughs> ranges from 23 to as high as $15,600. One of the amusing things here, too, though, is that the Indians that, he, that were given this didn't even live there. They just happened to be traveling through. <laughs> May 23, 1701, Captain William Kidd, a legitimately legal privateer, was hanged for the flimsy charges of murder and piracy, a victim of the flip-flopping political machinations of the day. The newly installed Tory ministry hoped to use Kidd's conviction to discredit the Whigs who had initially backed him. In the end, it all backfired and discredited them instead, but I'm still bitter. Not the first nor last time that uh, people have suffered from political intrigue like that. May 23rd, 17, May 23rd, 1873, Canada's Northwest Mounted Police Force was established. It was originally to be called the Northwest Mounted Rifles, but they decided police would be a more appropriate term. And the reason that it was founded actually was to suppress the whiskey trade in the Northwest, basically meaning Alberta and uh, British Columbia, uh, because the Americans were running whiskey to the native population there uh, with whiskey forts abounding throughout the Northwest Territories. One of them, Fort Whoopup, has been reconstructed in Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, as sort of a a monument to the Northwest Mounted Police and the American whiskey traders who were debauching the Indians. 
May 20th, 1873, Levi Strauss patents his design for a sturdy work trouser or coverall reinforced at stretch points with copper rivets. After trying various fabrics, they settled on denim, legend having it that the first iterations were constructed from brown tent canvas dyed blue. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. First up on our media section today, we've got something new from Lindy Beige. This week he talks about salt answering the question, which was more valuable in, say, the Middle Ages, gold or salt? When people say that salt was more valuable than gold, they're pulling your leg, and he explains why. Uh, Not to say it wasn't valuable, which it was, but... Uh, Next up, we've got Forever England. This is a film from 1935, which was adapted from C.S. Forster's novel Brown on Resolution. This is the story of the illegitimate son of a British naval officer who single-handedly brings down a German cruiser during World War I. This was John Mills' first lead role and is also notable for being the first film to use actual Royal Navy ships. Luckily, it's available to stream on YouTube right now. I don't know if it's available anywhere else, but if you see a copy somewhere, grab it. I started the first part of it, and it looks really good, so I will have a link to that for you. If you'd like to learn more about, say, Captain Kidd, why not pick up The Pirate Hunter by Richard Zacks? Head on over to audible.com, where members of the History Files audience can pick up this book as a free audio download with a free 30-day trial for new listeners. Visit www.audibletrial.com historyfiles to take advantage of this offer. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love, including The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660-783, by Alfred T. Mahan, a book that figures prominently into today's discussion. History lives again. Our main topic for today is the Battle of Jutland, or Jutland, if you're American or maybe British, which took place on May 31st of 1916, and actually continued into June 1st of 1916. Uh, As already noted, um, it took place just a hundred years ago as we record this, and the background to the battle is pretty complex. It's very complex, as are the origins of the First World War. In fact, some of them are the same. Uh, One of the main driving forces which caused the diplomatic break in the traditional alliance between Great Britain and Germany was the German buildup of her high seas fleet. And it was this fleet which met the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet in the North Sea off of Jutland and resulted in the greatest naval battle of World War I. So, Duncan, first off, thank you very much for joining us today. Quite. And uh, hopefully, I assume we're going to have a nice lively discussion because you're a um, an anglophile yes indeed uh being an anglican priest that makes a certain amount of sense uh and so i'll i'll be the devil's advocate and advocate for the germans even though they weren't really devils in this case that that was another 20 years or 30 years in the future but um the background to this uh, to this battle is is well like i said it's incredibly complex and 
really it, it boils down to Kaiser Wilhelm II. He, he, he was very envious of his cousin. George, very, George III. Absolutely. Very envious of, of the fact that for more than 100 years, the British had maintained control of the seas. Absolutely, since 1815, well, actually 1804 with the Battle of Trafalgar. Exactly. And so if you're going to be a sovereign and you're going to be a great sovereign, you're going to contend with your closest competitor. And certainly to be great, um, he had to um, supersede Great Britain and in particular their navy, which, which was very instrumental in maintaining the empire. So, right. um, and, and just for some background, anybody who doesn't know, um, Wilhelm II, who's the Kaiser of the new, newly minted German Empire, was the eldest grandson of Queen Victoria. And so he and his first cousin, uh, George V, um, I wouldn't call them friends, but they certainly grew up together. Well, and, and Kaiser was with Victoria when she died, and he made it a point of holding her hand and being there as though to gain some additional political... Um, uh, capital for for all of Europe. I was there when my great when my grandmother passed away. Um, he was clearly an envious uh, sovereign. And well, as, as another friend of mine pointed out, he's like the kid that tries too hard. Exactly. And, you know, everybody knows this guy, this kid who just he has to be the best at everything. And if you did it, it's um, you know he dismisses it. If he did it, it's the greatest thing ever. And it just annoying as all get out well and yet you can't blame him good grief i mean uh, these these uh these european nations were all living close together they were all comparing themselves to each other so um i i don't know that i paint him out to be an utterly um evil person or he was no. a, he was a typical sovereign and you compare the politics of that day with our day and you know it's there's nothing different right absolutely there's uh foolishness all around and you know, people seeking their own self-aggrandizement, whether they're a monarch or just a a politician. Right. Uh, sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're different individuals. Uh, but there was a lot going on here. And here's Kaiser Bill. I'm just going to refer to him as Kaiser Bill, who he is now the when he inherited the throne in in eighteen eight in eighteen eighty eight, uh, he became warlord of the most powerful army in Europe, meaning the world, yet he had virtually no navy. And here he grew up in the shadow of the greatest navy in the world, the Royal Navy, and it hurt. Well, it absolutely hurt. I, I, the other thing about Germany, which I admire, was their incredible industrial output, their their aggressive pursuit of fine engineering and um, so it actually is consistent with their um, industrial might to start start building steel battleships yes. and steel ships, and their engineering was extraordinary. So so mm -hmm. um, uh, that was absolutely consistent with their history. Yes, John Keegan, who's a marvelous military historian, uh, suggests that England probably reached its economic uh, peak in 1870. Right. And from that point on, both Germany and the United States became major competitors. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Uh, you'll also note that at about the time that Germany starts becoming not just an economic competitor, but a naval competitor, there's a 
serious push on the part of the British elites and American elites to have a rapprochement, however you pronounce that, um, between each other to get over a hundred years of conflict or semi-conflict. And by 1900, certainly by 1910, the British no longer have to worry about their Western flank because they're now friends with the United States. And the United States Navy, which was certainly the equal of the, the German Navy, was now a friendly force. And at the same time, the British worked with the Japanese to form a literal alliance in 1902. So their flank uh, in Asia was also protected. And so their only real serious naval competitor at this point is Germany. Well, and indeed, I think I think the Kaiser was surprised when the Americans came in on the side of the Brits because um, Germany felt a kindred spirit with America. Certainly, mm -hmm. the industrial um, similarities, the aggressive similarities, um, and but a large right, German but, population. Exactly, but but of course, um, politically, by that time, the Brits had had properly secured that. Um, of course, at this time, you know. At, in 1914, the Germans were surprised that the British involved themselves in World War One too. That, um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> because they were very, there was a lot of cluelessness going on. We could spend a whole session talking about the precursing uh, precursors to World War One. Um, I don't. I think we want to concentrate on the battle itself. But I think I think leading up to the battle, um, we see especially between Germany the 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 simple. If you'll pardon me for making it this trite, the competitiveness between the two sovereigns and the two militaries, um, the Battle of Jutland was going to happen one way or another. They were right. they they were geared to having a grand contest, if you will. We're not talking about a football game here. Men died, but but if from a, the point of view of a sovereign, they were going to have this contest. Correct. Very correct. The uh, in fact the the German uh, naval officers would toast regularly toast to der tag the day the day in which the german imperial navy was going to meet the royal britannic navy in battle and duke it out and decide who is the best well and since trafalgar that is the way you settle things with a ma with a, mm -hmm. a major battle which satisfies the necessities of conflict at sea and settles settles the um settles the question if you will yeah, in fact, that's one of the things I want to get into is that there's two basic naval theories of warfare. There's guerre de main, or guerre de main, uh, in which it's big ships fighting in big fleets fighting big battles. And the, uh, the point is to knock out your enemy's main fleet, so then you have absolute control of the seas. The other theory, which is usually adopted by less powerful countries is guerre de course in which or guerre de cour in which you just attack your your enemy's shipping hmm. and the germans started out strong proponents of guerre de main but ended up as definitely as fighting a naval war of guerre de course and where, and where do you think that uh, uh, that change occurred do you think that that it was from on high or whether the uh, the leaders of the German Navy wrestled with um, the, going back and forth between the two scenarios. Oh, I think strongly they had absolute contempt for the submarines. Yeah, and of course, which were the primary, you know, weapon of guerre de course, uh, and 
it just happened so happened that these were a marvelous weapon and they worked and it's like huh yes our, they did our battleships aren't working so hot yeah these submarines are working yeah. great and they cost us a fraction yeah and if we lose a hundred of those they still cost less than a battleship okay sounds good to me right 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 <laughs> right, right, right right but there is something majestic and if you'll pardon me, romantic about the battleship, oh, the capital yes. ship, the grand um, uh, example of manhood and, and chivalry and submarines were, and as they are today, quite useful throughout the 20th century. They and are. The 21st. But battleships are status weapons. Oh, absolutely. I, which I, is why we've still got four. And, and which is why we're talking <laughs> about the Battle of Jutland and not, not the Battle of Attrition. Right. Not the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, um, so an, another thing I want to bring in here is what was going on and why this was going on was a certain captain of the United States Navy, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was a rather shy instructor of naval history and the president of the Naval War College, um, in 1890 published a series of his notes and entitled it The Influence of Sea Power on History. And that book had an enormous influence itself on history the in the book he showed very very well very effectively how england went from a second class european power to ruling a quarter of the globe a quarter of the surface of the globe by 1900 through the focus on sea power uh, it was hailed in the united states for its brilliance it was hailed in britain because he said that the brits were great and <laughs> and that their um, their strategy worked beautifully and it was uh, enormously popular throughout the rest of the world because it was a blueprint of what to do and Mahan was a very strong proponent of Gear de Maine that again big ships in big fleets fighting other big ships in other big fleets and having a decisive victory was the way to go and it certainly had worked for the British. He tended to ignore the fact that the British also had lots and lots of frigates out there right. destroying their enemies' shipping. And, but, you know, we tend to ignore what we don't want to see. <laughs> I would say that, that Japan followed uh, Mahan. I, I think mm -hmm. America to, to a we great extent. Did. And we're, we certainly, for the 20th century, our Navy, uh, which by 1945 was just unmatched by anyone, mm -hmm. maintained a, a Pax Americana for quite some time. Absolutely. Um, you see China now building up a Navy. Uh, Japan is talking about building aircraft carriers and they're in the process of doing that. Mm -hmm. So even 120 years later, that still is has an influence on um, military does. political um, theory. So um, Admirals all, love this theory because it leads to Large fleets. Large All the ships. more in 1916. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yep. It leads to more gold braid. Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, as you pointed out, the Japanese were big proponents of this. And, well, we can get into that yeah. another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. Possibly. Later on. Another time. Uh, so one of the results of the publication of this book was Kaiser Bill when he read it, he he didn't just read it, he devoured it. Of course, so did Teddy Roosevelt. Right. There's a lot of similarity between those two guys, um, as did Winston Churchill. 
all three men had a certain similarity. And um, they devoured the book, and Kaiser Bill not only insisted all his officers read it, he sent them copies, <laughs> and he had every single vessel in the German Navy have at least a copy on board. It was his Bible. And so pragmatically, even though perhaps the war of attrition was the reality for most of uh, the first two years of World War I, they did have some skirmishes between smaller ships. It was in the back of the mind of everyone in the leadership that there, there must be a grand event. Right. It was the self-fulfilling prophecy. They were both angling for the big battle. Right, right. Uh, this book pretty much is what really got Kaiser Bill going mm -hmm. on getting his, yep. his big fleet. Yep. Uh, really was the, the, the kernel of the idea, <laughs> more, of a, more than just a kernel. Uh, and it also was what drove the wedge between Britain and Germany this idea that you're building a huge fleet for your overseas colonies. We're making the seaways safe for everyone. Why do you need a fleet? Who on earth would you be fighting? Right. You're not planning on fighting the French at sea. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't fight us. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Are we friends? Right. right. I thought right. we were friends. Why, right. do you, why do you want to build a, a navy? You're the land force that we ally with. We'll take care of the oceans. And that was the classic British strategy was they would ally with whoever had the biggest army to face down the French or the Russians. And um, like Austria and, and Germany, we will ally with you guys and pay you to do this while we scour the seas. When you're an empire, um, that's the proper way to process that sort of thing. Is it? Well, why? Why would you? We, we're giving you this, this uh, the, the peaceful seas. Why would you possibly want anything more? But when you're an up and coming nation of aggressive builders. Um, of course you're going to contend, and, mm -hmm. and that's what happens with empires anyway. You're going to have competition. Uh, I'm making this sound like a football game. It's not a football game when you go to war, but, but you're going to have co contention. You're going to have uh, competition. And um, uh, so if you're an empire, you shouldn't really be surprised that someone wants to come up behind and, and replace you. It's happening today. It's happening today, yes. yes. We're getting right. to watch this very same process take place today. Um, so the, we end up with this ruinously exp expensive yeah. naval arms race. Um, as Winston Churchill, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty when war broke out, he pointed out that uh, the conservatives at one point demanded four new battleships. The liberals insisted on only two, so we compromised on six. <laughs> <laughs> and that seems to have been the way it went. Yeah, yeah. There was just enormous... En Unfath well, unfathomable to us people who don't live in, in the District of Columbia, um, amounts of money that were being spent on this uh, on both sides of the channel. And so, so the, the British, in order to, they thought that they were going to basically put paid to this whole arms race by jacking up the, uh, the ante. And uh, Jackie Fisher who was the first sea lord, um, and, and a, an a, amazing man in his own right. You're just full of, abs just, just an energetic powerhouse. He came up with um, and had the patronage to develop 
HMS Dreadnought, which was the first all-big gun ship. Now, it didn't have all big guns, but primarily. Uh, they did away with all these intermediate uh, calibers, like 4-inch, 6-inch, 8-inch, that weren't really necessary on a big battleship. Uh, but, you know, so that really increased the efficiency. And he also probably would something that was even more um, revolutionary was the engines. Yep. Uh, they replaced the old reciprocating engines with steam turbines. Yep. Giving a top speed of something like 21 knots. Which was pretty fast in, 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 in that, in that uh, era. It was. It was. Now... Uh, destroyers, certainly American destroyers of 1918, 1919, in a sprint could do 30 knots with steam turbine engines, but that destroyers and they're made to cut through the water like a knife. The Dreadnought, on the other hand, was a battle wagon designed to punish its enemies. Well, and there was just, there were so many other engineering uh, innovations that it made every other ship um, obsolete. Obsolete, absolutely. And change the whole race. Yes, it, it too was ruinously expensive, but overnight, everybody else's battleships were second class. Although I will insert here that America um, had a class that was probably completed after the Dreadnought. can't remember whether, sorry, the Mississippi class, I think. Um, it was begun before, however, and it was probably a better weapon platform than the hmm. dreadnought that said um it, now my own grandfather was on the new jersey the old new jersey right 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 bb16 right right, right. Uh, i think that was launched in 1908 so so so, so that generation our our ships were, uh, were, were probably close. had probably go about 20 21 knots had better armor had the same idea of a large caliber a main large caliber right. multiple um guns um uh, same kind of engineering that said, Dreadnought was the one that got the press, and of course it that did. set off the Germans to begin their building campaign, yep. and um, and ours as well. We did, we started building Dreadnoughts, correct. as did the Japanese. Actually, the Japanese bought most of theirs from Britain at this point, right? Right. Still, but the Russians, yep, uh, the French, yep. everybody, Austrians even had to have yep. a couple. Yep, the Italians had to. Everybody in the world had to build Dreadnoughts. Uh, just to keep up. The name is cool. Dreadnought. Dreadnought. What a great name. And of course, it's one that goes back. Elizabeth had a warship called the Dreadnought. Not only is the name cool, but they look cool. Absolutely. I mean, that whole design, that whole configuration is... You look at steampunk art in the present day, they always copy the Dreadnought whole lines because why not? It's the coolest thing ever. It's the coolest thing ever. Absolutely. So, so my bias, of course, is that I love the British design. The the epitome of that design uh, before um, the 1920s was the Iron Duke, mm -hmm. um, the Splendid Cats, uh, this this beautiful British um, post-Victorian superstructure that just had a grandness to it. The Brits, or the Germans, seemed to build um, shorter, um, lower to the to the, um, uh, the the waterline ships, they had their own beauty in my mind, but but for me, the epitome of the capital ship was the British. My bias, I accept Your bias, it. That's all right. I, th I think the absolute pinnacle is, of course, the uh, Iowa class. 
Well, that's that's, that's another there. conversation. But, that, but that's, that's another an, conversation. And that's another gen, couple of generations. Right, right. Of the ships. Iowa class was the best battleship ever built. We could get into an argument mm -hmm. about that. Naval enthusiasts do. That's another conversation. Yep. It, um, and we still got four of them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They, they were incredible. Yeah. Uh, so back to the uh, <laughs> the dreadnought, uh, it gave its name to a whole class yeah. of, of ships. I mean, not just a class, but a whole generation. And uh, although it nearly bankrupted Britain to do so, by 1916, she had actually constructed 28. Right of these new dreadnoughts. In eight years, they constructed 28 of these. And, That's um, amazing. And the Germans had only managed to construct 16. However, when you consider that the British had a worldwide uh, presence, the, the Germans had a good um, possibility of having at least local, if not superiority, at least um, equal numbers in the North Sea. Um, the old dreadnoughts were still formidable, uh, but with their lack of speed and um, well, their lack of guns. Now, let's see, as I recall, the dreadnought just had 12-inch guns. Correct. And the Queen Elizabeth, which came out in 1914, had 15-inch so, 15 15 guns. guns. So we're definitely upgrading everything here. Uh, before I move on to anything more about this, I wanted to mention that the last of the dreadnoughts is USS Texas, which still resides in, guess what, Texas, yeah. uh, just outside of Houston at the San Jacinto uh, Memorial uh, Battlefield. I guess it sort of makes sense that they would put it right there. Anyway, the um, another of Jackie Fisher's ideas to take root in the Royal Navy was the idea of the battle cruiser, which is, of course, one of your favorite vessels. I love battle cruisers. And it's sort of basically a lighter version of the Dreadnought. All big gun, but just not, well, and fast, but without the armor. Right. Well, and, 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 and of course, the Germans had to follow suit because they were envious. And, and so what I would say about the Battlecruiser 1 is that, the, that they, they, they had speed. Secondly, they had big guns. Um, right. The Invincible class, I believe, carried 12-inch. The uh, Splendid Cats, 13.5. Uh, eventually, the Repulse and uh, Renown had 15-inch guns. Mm -hmm. The Hood had 15-inch guns. The, the purpose was to get there. And, and I, I think it speaks to a philosophy of an aggressive engagement. Mm -hmm. And when properly used, um, I believe that battlecruisers were not only a, a grand innovation, but they were very useful. And um, we'll, we'll hopefully get into the controversy around the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the quote from... Uh, the Admiral, there's something wrong with our bloody ships. Um, <laughs> yes. In fact, I think it's not so much the design as much it was the improper behavior within the design. Um, battle cruisers could, could take damage, um, and they were fast, but they weren't necessarily designed to be main capital ships in a battleship-to-battleship, uh, battleship, dreadnought-to-dreadnought engagement. They were more about yeah. scouting. They were m more about getting in and getting out. And um, Admiral Beatty, unfortunately, I don't think quite understood that. Right. Well, this is something that in, in my study history I see always happens. You have uh, your heavies, whether it's cavalry or tanks or, um, or ships, that are designed specifically for a major slugging match. But commanders never have enough of those. So they take 
the next tier down, which is not designed to do that, but they throw them in there anyway in the hopes that they'll get some some licks in before they go down, and they suffer. They well, you, always you, yeah, suffer. Yeah, you use what you have. But, you know, whether if you're throwing, you know, carbineers in a, um, into a lance charge of fully armored heavy cavalry, they're going to suffer because they just don't have the size of horses. They don't have the armor. If you throw, you know, main battle tanks at each other and throw in some nice light scouting ones like, you know, our light tanks of World War, our medium tanks, which we used like heavy tanks, it doesn't work so well. You use what you got. Well, and why would you have foot soldiers charge artillery pieces, which occurred throughout the Civil War, occurred right. in World War One? Same principle. You use yeah. what you have. What you you, you, in some ways, um, every war is um, filled with with uh, a behavioral strategy from preceding engagements that. Um, seem to overlook the current technology right. and um, um, even World War II had the same thing. So yeah. um, Lessons are learned, but they're not necessarily the proper ones. Well, that's right. And unfortunately, <laughs> Jutland gave us some lessons about battle cruisers that um, they hadn't quite seen as obvious prior right. to that battle. Right. So with the outbreak of hostilities, and we're not going to go into why, you can look that up yourselves, um, the outbreak of the hostilities, uh, Winston Churchill, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty, ordered the home fleet from its normal port in Portsmouth up to Scapa Flow, and you know, way up in the North Sea, north of the Scottish mainland. Uh, one of the things that showed the wisdom of this was on September 9th of 1914, about a month later, three of what they called elderly cruisers. They really weren't that old, but they, because of the extreme rapidity of, of technological development, they were sort of elderly. But Abukir, Cressy, and Hogue, later referred to as the Live Bait Squadron, <laughs> were cruising off the coast of Belgium and uh, managed to, unfortunately, become the object of the attentions of U-9, a German submarine under the command of uh, Otto Wettigen, and he had four, a total of four torpedoes, uh, two in his front, uh, in his bow uh, tubes. Tank tubes, and two in the rear tubes, the stern tubes, and he used all of them, and in the course of about an hour, he managed to sink all three of them, because the when the first one was hit, their consorts thought, oh, it struck a mine, and so they stopped. And he said, oh, if they're going to stop, I'm going to keep shooting, uh, which he did. And this is what's funny is this was one of their earlier, earliest submarines, and it still used kerosene. It wasn't even Amazing. a diesel boat. It was a kerosene boat. And that showed pretty quickly that submarines were going to be eh, a bigger factor in this war than anybody had thought possible. I will say this about British ships, um, their, their watertight integrity and it, it was, had much to be desired, yes. and that was true even in World War II. Um, so they lost battleships to mines, mm -hmm. torpedoes were devastating to these ships, and even the belt armor, didn't matter how thick it was, once you started having flooding, um, they had fewer watertight 
compartments. Actually, the Germans were very good at this. Longitudinal bulkheads they were very uh, sturdy in the German ships. The British ships, not so much. And as a matter of fact, one of the one of the sub texts to that, of course, is that the British ships were designed to travel the world. Yes. So they had true. to be commodious. Right. They had to have room for um, uh, berthing for crew. The Germans right. had almost no berthing for crew because right. they 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 were they they go out to sea and they'd come home so they had um thicker bulkheads thick uh, more watertight compartmentation the, the 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 brits not so much and so um the, their ships tended to go down rapidly once there was flooding i'm sorry to say that well this is true now of course on the other hand both the u.s navy and we proved this more in world war ii than world war one and the royal navy uh were designed for the conditions of the North Sea. Absolutely. And had the sea keeping yep. abilities. Yep. And therefore, we could keep our ships on station much, much longer than either the Germans in either war or the Japanese. That's right. And uh, so just that. There's, arm, a, there's a trade off. I mean, you can't. There's a trade off. Especially in 1914, you can't do both. You can't have commodious accommodations for crew for long cruises, range. And uh, thick, watertight doors. I mean, yeah. certainly they had those, but so that's the trade-off. And I think in right. some ways you would prefer to have the British design so that you can do um, the task for which these ships were built, was, which was to maintain the empire. Right. Now, the first actual naval engagements of the war in the North Sea, because there was also the ones of Coronel and Falklands, yep. which we won't get into, yep. uh, but we're at... I believe it's pronounced Heligoland Bight in August of 1914 and Dogger Bank in January of 1915. Uh, and they were totally inconclusive. Uh, Heligoland Bight was an attempt by the British to jump some German destroyers and resulted in the loss of several destroyers and cruisers to the British. Uh, Dogger Bank, the squadron of German pre-dreadnoughts were met by a squadron of British dreadnoughts and heavy cruisers. And... <laughs> Of course, the British managed to acquire the German uh, transmission codes, which right. rather like our ability to read the Japanese code yep. purple in yep. World War II, yep. uh, as kind of an unfair advantage, but oh well, all's fair in love and war, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it works. Sorry <laughs> about that. It works. Sorry. If you're too arrogant to think that you're so arrogant, you think that your codes are unbreakable, well, tough on you. The... Um, uh, the Germans lost uh, these, uh, SMS Blücher, while the British flagship of the squadron, HMS Lion, was severely damaged. The Germans, of course, were chased back in both cases to their lair, while the British returned to lick their own wounds. The result was the Kaiser was now getting a little bit hesitant to send out his precious fleet. Right. Um, the Germans also started to have a change of heart as to what they were what the navy was for if u9 could inflict such amazing damage maybe there was something to this whole guerre de course thing and so they sent out uh fairly large numbers of not only u-boats but also merchant raiders uh such as the say adler and um of course the emden mm -hmm. which are of course subjects for yet another day but that resulted in the japanese navy uh, coming to the rescue, as it were, by uh, escorting Australian troop ships across the Indian Ocean. 
and even sending a uh, an armored cruiser to the Straits of Juan de Fuca to protect the which is right where we live. Here. I did not know that. That isn't uh -huh. that interesting. How how active they were. Yeah, indeed, uh, it's pretty cool. Here's a Japanese armored cruiser protecting the the Canadian cities of Victoria and Vancouver. Of course, American batteries from uh, yep from Port Townsend yep. and from. Yep. Uh, uh, Port Angeles could reach all the way across, so I don't think we would have suffered any German raiding to come in, even though we were neutral. It just wouldn't have been Puka. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, but what an interesting story. And the other, but the other thing about the submarine raiders was that at the beginning of the war, there was all sorts of propriety imposed. Right. And so, um, of course, in war, you always wrestle with the convention limits and. Um, uh, propriety and the loss of innocent people. And indeed, in the beginning of the war, the raiders and the submarines would hail the ship they were about to sink. They would mm -hmm. give them uh, a due chance to um, disembark on, on uh, lifeboats. And then they would, because they weren't trying to kill the crew, they were trying to destroy the cargo. Right. Um, things eroded. Uh, after rapidly. a few episodes where the Germans did their due diligence and suffered for it. Right. And the, the British shot at their ships. Well, that, that's right. So, so they, um, you know, the submarines, uh, they weren't fast. So right. stealth was their, right. their only weapon, their only defense. So they just wouldn't surface anymore because the British were going to shoot at them if they did. Uh, makes a certain amount of sense. And of course, the submarine warfare was in response to the... Um, British blockade right. of Germany, but that but it's that's very important. I mean, the submarine Absolutely, the yes. submarine warfare was very important because, uh, in many ways, um, they then began using the submarines to um, a check out the British fleet and b right. to lure and also c to to inform the high seas fleet what was going on with the Grand Fleet. Right, they were the eyes and ears Absolutely. of the German Navy at this point. That's right. Too. Uh, now, one thing I want to also discuss are some of the personalities involved. Uh, as Churchill said, John Jellicoe, Admiral John Jellicoe, was it Sir John by this point, um, was the only man who could lose the war in an afternoon. He was the com uh, commander of the Grand Fleet, and as such, he had absolute control over pretty much what the fleet was doing. Uh, his subordinate... Sir David B Beatty, I will call him Beatty. That's probably the proper. Let's agree on that. Yep. All right, we'll call Beatty. him Beatty. Um, he was a different sort of person. Where just Jellicoe seems to be a the the stolid English bulldog type. Beatty seems to be well. He wears his cap at a jaunty angle, and he was a favorite of the ladies and had quite an opinion of himself. He was a bit of a grandstander and um, also had obvious political aspirations, certainly within the Navy itself. Mm -hmm. um, he, um, frankly, is is not someone I find as compelling as Jellicoe. Um, and I, I would um, have to say that, that some of the results of this battle are on his shoulders. Although yeah. the way he campaigned after the fact, he made sure that, that didn't happen, but uh, <laughs> right. there it is. I, I think he was a sloppy uh, commander, and that's that's my opinion about that. He was a messy commander 
who left a lot of holes in his command, but was certainly an aggressive guy, was certainly right. wanting to get his ships into harm's way and get into the thick of things. And um, so that, so, and the other guy that um, uh, tends to be less obvious is Sir Hugh Evan Thomas, who commanded right. the, the larger of the dreadnoughts, the Queen the Elizabeth fifth? class battleships, oh, the right, fifteen-inch right, right. battleships, and he was um, he his um, his uh, his group was assigned to Beatty. Um, right, he was subordinate to Beatty. Correct, but his ships were, in my mind, far more effective in the battle. I hopefully right. we'll get to that point. But yeah. um, once he started um, engaging, the battle changed considerably. Yes, <laughs> yes. So. On the German side, just briefly to mention, it was uh, the command of uh, the first and third battle squadrons uh, were under Reinhard Scheer, and the the battle cruiser squadron, uh, the German battle cruiser squadron, was under Franz Hipper. So uh, you will be hearing those names lately. So the battle itself was enormous. There were something like 99 German vessels involved and 151 British vessels involved. Now, most of these were a cloud of destroyers and torpedo boats, uh, lots and lots of light cruisers, armored cruisers. But then we get into the heavy cruisers and the and the battleships, which is they were the they're what everybody focuses on because they're they were the big. Jesus. British had 28 dreadnoughts, Germans had 16 pre-dreadnoughts, the British declined to use them, but the German had six, mm-hmm. nine British battle cruisers versus the five of the Germans, and that's a lot of heavy ships. That's a lot of big ships, and this was definitely that decisive battle that uh, of Gerdemain that Mahan oh, yes. talks about, and it would, that everybody sought. Jellicoe was seeking this, Beatty was seeking it, Shearer was seeking it. That's what the Kaiser wanted. That's what Churchill wanted. Everybody involved wanted this big, decisive battle. And what they got was a big battle, but it wasn't necessarily decisive. We'll talk about that. So here we have the setup. The you have these two fleets ready to go at each other, hammer and tongs. Uh, we have this technological, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, what you want to call it. They, these ships are ready, willing, and able to pound each other into dust. And we have not only the political will, but the well, yeah, I guess you'd say the political will to do it. Uh, as you mentioned, that's sort of an inevitability. It's almost an epic inevitability that mm-hmm. something like this was going to happen. It needed to happen, and um, and yet um, and yet the fact that it took two years is that actually quite int- intriguing to me. It it is actually yeah that it took two years for them to get around to this inevitable day that they had been working for twenty five years to get to. So now we see how the technology stacks up against each other. Absolutely. Yeah, we haven't had a two-part episode in a while, but this is definitely one of them because there's just so much to talk about. So yeah, this is great. So we'll uh, 
you're going to have to tune in again next week to get the exciting conclusion, the actual battle and conclusion of this with our special guest, Duncan Clark. And uh, yeah, we're having a good time. Yeah, it was a marvelous conversation. I'm enjoying it. Good. So join us again next week for the exciting conclusion to the Battle of Jutland. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.